Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey, Founder fam. Welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're speaking with Ali Godsey, co-founder and CEO of Databricks, a data and AI company valued at $38 billion. Now, Databricks is on a mission to help data teams solve the world's toughest problems. And in our conversation, we discuss how to practically use AI in your business, where it's going, how to use data effectively from the beginning, and so much more. He has a wealth of wisdom. Please welcome to the podcast, Ali Godzi. So Ali, the first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Well, so... I'm one of the seven co-founders of Databricks, but I wasn't the original CEO. So I became actually CEO several years into the journey, so in 2016. Uh, so um, the original job as a founder of Databricks, I kind of, you know, I was a researcher at UC Berkeley, and um, we got to see what Silicon Valley tech companies were doing, and we wanted to take what they were doing and democratize it and give it to every other organization out there. And we tried to do that through research by open sourcing technology, but no one picked up our open source technology. So 
uh, we found ourselves in a situation where the only way we could actually get anyone to adopt our software was to actually start our own company. So, uh, so 2013, we started Databricks and the goal was how do we get this kind of technology, AI and so on in everyone's hands. Hmm. So you started out as a, a scholar uh, at Berkeley, an academic, um, can you, did you ever think that you would start a, a technology company? No, I actually kind of thought of, uh, you know, the business world as the sort of dark side. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm never going to join that side, really. I'm a researcher. I do research. I publish papers. I'm going to be a professor and uh, I'm never going to be in this business world. So, yeah, no, absolutely not. So, so what happened? Can you talk us through kind of like uh, you, you went to Silicon Valley as a, as a, as a scholar um, for, from Berkeley? Like, like what happened? Tell, talk us through. Yeah, so, you know, we're there, we're seeing what they're doing. I think we were actually at Facebook and we saw that, uh, you know, they could predict couples breaking up in advance using AI. This is 2009 or 10, right? Long time ago. And our minds were blown and we said, you know, this is amazing technology. At that time, no one out there in the industry had anything like that. So we wanted to just, you know, open source that kind of technology, do research on it and get it in everyone's hands. But we built the technology. It was pretty amazing in our opinion, but no one wanted to adopt it. And the, the thing we kept hearing from organizations was, yeah, this is just some academic pro, you know, prototype that you guys built, some PhD students. We can't rely on that. Uh, so uh, sorry, we have to use enterprise ready software. So we just kept getting rejected. So I think 2013, we finally had it. And we said, you know, we're, we're just going to get in there and see if we can do it ourselves and put some money behind it. So that's kind of how it started. Uh, I was still not 100% sure that I wanted to do this really full time for real. Uh, but, you know, reluctantly, I was actually part time. I was the only co-founder. I was slightly part time in the beginning. Um, but, you know, soon we were off to the races. Yeah, well, and, and why why weren't you 100% on it at the start? Yeah, again, I just thought, you know, this business world and, you know, it's like, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to do pure research. I'm not going to do this business stuff. And, you know, the academic research was a lot of fun. It was very competitive. It was, uh, we were doing, you know, research at the international level. I thought, you know, there's so many startups. What are the chances that this startup will succeed? Probably nil. Uh, why spend the time? Uh, so that's kind of how it started, but very soon it changed. Mm. So what happened next? Yeah. I mean, you know, slowly, you know, you, you get sucked in more and more and, uh, you know, as any founders that are listening to the show know, uh, it totally consumes you. Right. And it's like, it's almost like having your own child. It's like, you're so, you know, you care about it so deeply and you want that company to succeed and you start spending your days 24 seven on it. So even though I was on paper part-time, I was finding myself doing hundred hour weeks on the startup. So then I thought to myself, this is silly. I should just, you know, I should just, uh, admit what I'm doing and I'm, I'm, I'm full-time at this company and I, I was all in and, and I started enjoying it quite a bit as well. So talk to us about, um, you know, how you proved Apache Spark's worth to users and investors in the early days. Yeah. So early days, you know, we were saying, look, this stuff has adoption. People are downloading it. Um, and we think that AI can change the world, fund us. And in the very, very beginning, they said, look, okay, wow, it seems like there's some traction behind open source projects. People are downloading this open source stuff. That's great. Here's some money. But next time, next time we meet, you better show us some revenue, okay? Uh, so, oh, sure, sure, sure. 
So we went on and then, you know, a year goes on and you've spent quite a bit of the money that you raised and you hired a lot of people and they're burning through the cash. Uh, so you go back to raise more money and then they say, okay, well, look, fine, your downloads have increased, uh, but this is the absolutely last time we're going to give you any money just showing us downloads, okay? We know you have downloads. We want to see revenue. So you go back and then you come back a year later again and you say, hey, look, look at my download charts. They're amazing. I mean, the number of downloads are through the roof. I said, but where is the revenue? So like we, we kept doing that through 2013, 14, 15. You know, it wasn't really until 16 that we started really showing revenue for real. And we were very stressed ourselves, especially around 2015. The open source technology really took off. Like everybody started downloading it. Everybody started talking about it. So our download charts were amazing. Unfortunately, our revenues were not. Uh, in 2015, though, you know, so we were two, three years in, we had one and a half million dollars of revenue. Uh, so the board started putting a lot of pressure on us. Like, we've given you all this money. You keep saying that there are so many downloads, but where is the revenue? Uh, so we were very, very stressed in 15. Um, and that led us to do some big changes in 16 uh, to sort of figure out how we can actually trigger this, get the revenue going and uh, start scaling the company also from a monetary perspective. So what did you do? What happened? So, I mean, first we did the CEO change. Um, and then I sort of had nothing to lose. So I took three pretty big bets. Uh, one big bet was sort of really pivot the company to really focus on large enterprises. Prior to that, we had been really big fans of product-led growth. People come, they swipe their credit cards. We didn't want to hire any salespeople. Uh, the software should sell itself. Uh, we're big fans of that. And look at Amazon. They did that, and it was amazing. We want to do the same thing, right? Um, but, you know, it wasn't going well, and we weren't getting the revenue that we uh, wanted. So, um, so that was one big change. It was like, maybe we should just invest in these... Um, enterprise sales uh, folks. So that was one. Second thing we did is this open source model that we had, just pure open source. Um, if you just are open sourcing everything you're doing, then no one's uh, going to pay you anything. In fact, what we were experiencing that we would go around in Silicon Valley and people would come up to us and recognize us and say, hey, are you guys the Spark guys? Yeah, we are. Oh, can I take a selfie with you? Yeah, absolutely. Let's take a selfie. So we take a selfie. And then same people would say, well, okay, can you pay us $100,000 for this software? And we say, no, why would I do that? It's free, you know? <laughs> so we were getting the selfies, but we were not getting any money. Uh, so that's when we started realizing that we probably need to figure out if we're just giving all of it away for free, no one wants this. So let's focus on those enterprise capabilities that really large enterprises need, security, um, reliability, enterprise support, those kind of things. And let's, let's start building those as not open source and charge for those. And that's when the revenue kind of flywheel started increasing. Mm, and that's when effect effectively you guys became Databricks, right? Yeah, and this is, you know, yes. That's when really sort of the shift focused from just being Spark open source to actually Databricks. Yes. When it came to the transition of you becoming the CEO, how, how did that come, come about? And because you've got... Got seven co-founders. That's uh, that, that's a that's a big founding team. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, in fifteen, my predecessor um, was, uh, you know, a professor. I decided he wanted to go back to academia. You know, they they give you only this many years to to go start a business, so he needed to go back. And I think there was more or less a consensus among the founding team that uh, it should be me. Uh, however, I'm not sure the board was convinced that. Uh, a company that's had huge download success, but not uh, monetary success, 
should have a CEO that, um, you know, has a PhD and is a tech person, just like the previous CEO, right? So maybe we should do a search and maybe we should get someone from the outside, um, someone who has experience, someone who's not a first time CEO, uh, someone who's seen the movie before, maybe someone from the sales and go to market site, because after all, what is it we're trying to improve? Well, we're trying to improve the go to market site. We know you can get the downloads. We want the monies. So, uh, so they did, there was a search and it was a stressful period. They did interview a lot of professional CEOs. And then I think last minute, the board kind of uh, took a bet on me. I later found out that they didn't really pay me as a CEO. They said, look, we'll just have him be the CEO for the next six months and we'll see how it goes. If it doesn't go well, we'll get a new person. And we don't need to pay him like a CEO because he doesn't really deserve it because he's never been CEO. So that's kind of how it started. I didn't know that, but apparently I was just on a probation, you know, six month period. Mm, crazy. So um, I know that uh, Ben Horowitz is on the board. He's a good friend of yours. And uh, yeah, uh, Andreessen Horowitz was one of your guys' first investors. I'd love to hear kind of how you guys met and uh, yeah, how everything came about there. Yeah, he, he grew up in Berkeley. Uh, we were all researchers at UC Berkeley. It's a small little college town there. And um, so he knew the companies around there and he had heard that uh, we were onto something and that we wanted to replace the existing sort of de facto software at the time. So he was the one that actually came in and said, you know, we, you know, I, I believe in you guys. I want to invest. You know, you have to see at, at that time, we weren't sure we wanted to really raise a lot of money and create a big company. So I think we told them, give us $200,000 seed funding. We'll do some hacking here. And eventually, you know, we'll come back and raise the proper Series A uh, round. But he said, no, 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 I'm super serious about this. I think you guys can change the world. Uh, I'll get on your board. And we said, sure, give us $200,000. And he said, no, no, no. If I'm, you know, if I'm on your board and I'm spending my whole time, I want significant funding. And actually, the founding team, we felt like, do we really want a person like that? Like, you know, he's, he hasn't, he's, he's not a programmer. Uh, are we going to really take money from him? And we actually kind of decided against it. Uh, and we went around the table internally and we said, look, is there a price at which we would take it? And we just kept one-upping each other on what that valuation would be. Remember, we had nothing, right? So it's a company worth nothing. We have nothing. We just seven guys, right? And, uh, I think the first person said, yeah, I mean, if he already values us at, you know, say $20 million and we haven't done anything, well, that's a lot of money. So maybe we should take it. And then the next day I said, no, no, I wouldn't take it for that. You know, he would have to value us. 30 and the number kept going up and i think last person was really bold and they said something like 35 million uh so we kind of decided no we're, we're not going to take any money from him and then that day where the decision was made he came into our office he was actually 40 minutes late um there's a lot of traffic apparently and we had dressed up that day we had put on shirts you know no more shorts and you know flip-flops and he came in and uh, we all pretended we were working hard there. And he came in and he said, look, I'm not going to negotiate with you guys. I'm not going to haggle. I'm going to make you final best offer. I'm essentially going to value your company at $50 million. Take it or leave it. And I want an answer now. And we jumped on it to me. That's absolutely. We're ready to sign. <laughs> you know, so that's how we got off uh, to, to. So and, you know, that was a big valuation. It was a lot of money also, $14 million. So um, the pressure was on to live up to those valuations immediately. Uh, so that, that, that's how it got started. Yeah, and, and why, why do you think that, that, that this happened, that he gave you an offer you couldn't refuse? I think at that early stages of Andreessen Horowitz, uh, they were not yet a name brand firm. I mean, they were, we knew about them, 
but they weren't this huge firm that they are now. That, you know, everybody knows about Andreessen Horowitz and so on. Um, so I think they they were being pretty aggressive in the early days with coming in with big valuations and taking the deal off the table quickly. And we were one of those that they came in, right? So they, they knew that it's uh, that's the way to to win the deals. And they got quite a few good deals. Today, I think things are different, right? It's a really reputable firm. Um, it's one of you know top, I would say, VC firms here in Silicon Valley. So things have shifted. So those early days, they would make these sort of outsized offers. And uh, with a founding team of seven, literally seven co-founders, um, I'm curious to hear your take around the disadvantages and advantages. Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are huge advantages and huge disadvantages. Um, I think what people might find uh, surprising if they come to a company like Databricks is that they might find that uh, there are seven co-founders and they kind of challenge each other uh, in a way that no one else does in a normal company. So um, the way the usually in an organization, you have a CEO. And then when the CEO says something, look, I've kind of decided I want to do things this way. People kind of get in line. When you have seven co-founders, they say, uh, I think that's a bad idea. I don't agree with that. <laughs> you know, And people sometimes find that shocking. And it's really, really annoying being a CEO. And you've said what you want to do. And then you have this co-founder that's just sitting there and saying, yeah, I, I think you're just completely blatantly wrong on this one. Uh, doesn't happen with any other employees. Only happens with the co-founders. Uh, but I think it's good also because it creates checks and balances uh, on the CEO. So if I'm about to do something that's really crazy and it's really bad for the company, um, they'll make sure that um, they push back and they challenge me and I'll kind of get back in line. Uh, on the other hand, the frustrating part for me is, you know, on decisions where I'm completely convinced that I'm 100% right and I've done my thinking and I've gone through it, I might have to spend quite a bit of time convincing them that this is a good idea. Trust me on this one. And I'm, I'm kind of going to use the CEO card here. I don't know. You don't respect my CEO card here, but, but I'm going to use it. Anyway, and then usually they'll uh, they'll kind of you know after some complaining get in line. So um, so that dynamic is different, uh, but we're also really really good friends, and I think that happens in these companies when you found them together and you went through all the different stages. We've kind of been through a journey together that really no one else, no other friendships, or no one else has gone through. Right? We worked day and night, and our companies and everything we believed in almost died ten deaths over the years, right? And uh, so you become a really tight-knit group uh, that get to know each other. And we also saw each other sort of grow up over the last 10 years. People formed families, kids, so on. Uh, so it's also a really close friendship. And that's really valuable because I think they always say that uh, the CEO job is the loneliest job in the world. But I think that I, I actually never was that lonely at Databricks because I had my co-founders. Uh, I could always call them up and tell them what's going on and say, look, I think I screwed up and I think the company is going to be over by next week. And I've said, no, 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 what happened? And then you tell them, I said, no, it's not so bad. And let's strategize together. So that's a huge advantage for the CEO that you have, though. So while they're challenging you, you also have uh, friends and co-founders that are with you, even when things are not going well. They're not going to abandon you. Say, well, OK, if that's not going so well, then maybe I'm quitting here and doing another firm here. Um, so that's a huge advantage, knowing that you have that. So for me, it's... In the end of the day, it's a huge net positive. And I don't think Databricks wouldn't have gone to the place it is today without those founders. And last thing I will say is founders, they kind of are owners, right? They don't care what function or role they have in the company. They don't care, you know, okay, you're a co-founder of mine. I want you to focus on marketing. Sure, I'll do marketing for you. But 
if they don't like something that's going on in sales or product or engineering or in HR, they're going to speak up and say, hey, this doesn't make any sense. Can we make this work? So you get that from seven people. That's super, super powerful, right? Otherwise, organizations have a tendency to become a little bit introspective, just focusing on their function. Marketing focuses only on optimizing the marketing. And sales optimizes only sales. And engineering only optimizes uh, engineering. And then you have the CEO that's trying to shepherd all of it. But in a company, we have seven co-founders. You have kind of seven people that are making sure that they shepherd everything and that everything is uh, on track. Uh, so those are the advantages and some of the disadvantages. O overall, I think if you can find a group of friends that you really get along with and you can trust, it's a huge advantage. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And you said that um, there was many times where Databricks almost failed. Can you tell some of those stories? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's specifically when Spark really took off as an open source project. And it was sort of news articles after news articles every day about how Apache Spark is amazing. You can do all these things with it. And because it was open source, our competitors started adopting it. And they started also, it's open source, right? So they also started saying, okay, this is great. We will also have that software. And what then happened is that they were actually making much more revenue on our innovations than we were making. And um, in particular, because those companies were bigger, they had bigger scale, they had thousands of employees. If you went around and asked people, uh, hey, have you heard of Apache Spark? They would say, yeah, it's great. I remember, in fact, I was in a meeting in New York and we came in and we said, hey, so, you know, we're here to talk to you. We're the company. We, you know, have you heard of Spark? And the customer said, yeah, I heard of it. It's great technology. IBM built it. Those guys are great. And we said, well, actually, we, we kind of built it. And I said, well, the IBM guys have done really, really good work on Spark, too. And what do you say, right? It's a customer. You don't want to correct them. So that's the challenge, right? So the megaphone was with all these big vendors that had adopted Spark and not us. And the pressure was on from the board of, you're not monetizing it. It's great that you're getting the downloads. Everybody else is getting the revenue. And every week we would hear these reports about how our competitors were setting another record. You know, slow and slow now made $100 million of revenue on your technology. How much have you made? You know, oh, $500,000. That's great for you, but uh, that's less than the local restaurant is making. That was one quote from board meeting. So we felt the pressure, right? It's like, basically, you guys are as smart when it comes to business as the local restaurant owner here, uh, you know. So um, we felt that pressure and it was unclear. And I think in my mind, at least, I certainly at some point felt like, look, we had huge impact in the world with our technology. That's great in itself. Maybe we're not business guys. Maybe we're not, we just don't know this whole how you monetize it and that we, we don't, that's not our thing. That's okay. Uh, it, you know, you win some, you lose some. So. I certainly had that feeling um, in 14 and 15 to some extent. And I would also say, before the inflection point where we saw really the revenue started growing, in general, I think many of us had this view that the company probably will not succeed. Like if we all had to guess, we would have said, yeah, probably it won't, but we're going to give it our everything and see how far we can push it. And hopefully someone can buy it. Uh, and I remember from the early days, we were hoping maybe someone, someday someone will buy this company for, say, $200 million. We thought that would be a great outcome for us if we could ever reach sort of that kind of level uh, of acquisition. Uh, so that's the journey we went through. But I think around 2017, 
was when I started realizing that, no, there is, there is real momentum behind this. And the sort of revenue chart started hockey sticking and we knew that there's something here. We, we might have a tiger by sale. Yeah, well, it's crazy to think like uh, you guys are now valued at over 38 billion uh, and you would have been happy with a $200 million valuation. <laughs> is that like, is it like crazy to think of now? Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable, right? I mean, uh, I mean I'm mean, i saying we were we would have been very happy with 200 million when we started the company. I mean, we went, we actually had an exercise when we were around the table and we asked ourselves, like, you know, what would be a great outcome for us? And I think the numbers were ballpark 200 million. Some said 100, some said 150, some said 250. But that's how we were thinking about it. Um, so the, for sure, it's uh, it, it's been shocking. But it's also taken 10 years. So you also a little bit get used to it. So, you, you know, it takes you 10 years to sort of kind of uh, get used to the sort of scale and uh, how far you've come. And then, you know, I, what I would say is at any given time, even when the company is the scale that it is now, even close to 5,500 employees, um, you know, crossed, you know, billion dollar revenue uh, and so on, there's always the threat. It's a competitive world, especially in the space we are in, but really in any any field you're in and anything can happen to any company. So uh, you always feel that pressure. There's been lots and lots of great companies that have been created in the history of mankind that became huge and had massive impact. And today, they're just a small shadow of what they used to be back in the day. So the competitive pressure is always on. And the more successful you are, the more target on your back you have. The more people are saying, well, you know, it seems like those guys can make money doing that. Let me do the same thing they're doing and one-up them. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like they're building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Lots to talk about. I want to talk about AI and data because it's a, it's a massive conversation. But before I do, I'm just curious to hear your take around your story around becoming the CEO and not particularly uh, in the early days, kind of that was the ambition. Um, so what do you believe from your take is the difference between a professional CEO and a founding CEO? Great question. Um, I think especially for startups, early stage startups. Product is so important uh, to everything you do. And I just think it's extremely hard for a professional CEO that comes in from outside to really understand that product vision and understand that space that you're in. Um, typically, professional CEOs come from the go-to-market side of the house. So they're, they're sales folks or they're marketing folks, which is great. Uh, they know how to scale that side of the business, but they might not understand the exact product area you're in. And this is because as a startup, you're innovating. So you're doing something that no one's done before in a product area. You have a product or service that is supposed to be groundbreaking. That's why you started a new company. 
Well, that means no one really understands what you're doing. So that vision is in your head. Uh, so that's, I think, the big, big difference. So if you are going to be succeeding with a professional CEO that you bring in from the outside, it really better be a real mind meld between the founder that still stays in the company and works very closely and trusts that new leader. Sometimes it can happen. Uh, I think if you've lost the founding team and all you have is these professional CEOs that have come in from outside, I think the company's days are numbered. Um, it might still be a good outcome in a sense that the professional CEO might be able to a little bit get the revenues to go up and uh, change the marketing and get some traction and then sell the company. But I think most professional CEOs at that point sort of have their mindset that they probably want to sell the company. That's the most common thing, right? Or I would say most professional CEOs for startups have a four-year horizon in mind, max. And I think most founding CEOs are thinking about changing the world. They're not thinking in four-year terms. What do I get the valuation to? And then what would that mean for me? And so on. Uh, so I think that's a big difference you find. And you find that the founders all the time. They're thinking about changing the world. They're thinking really, really big. Uh, and they don't really care about, you know, four-year numbers, this and that, and what the multiples uh, on that will be. I think that's that's essential difference between the two. Of course, I'm generalizing. I'm sure there are exceptions to what I'm saying. But that's what I've seen over and over again. Mm. And it's interesting... It's interesting, like, what's interesting to me is, like, oftentimes when you start a company or early-stage startup founders, they start a company and the title CEO, but they're not really a CEO, right? And and there's a lot around actually becoming a CEO that you have to learn on the job and you're hopeless at it. And there's this age-old debate that sometimes people stay in this, the seat when they probably shouldn't because they're actually a better founder than they are CEO, Um because they actually, a lot of the times, founders don't really enjoy people leadership or holding people to account and all of these other things that come with being a CEO. What's your take there and, and how do you know when you should step down as, as a founder-led CEO and bring in a professional CEO or keep going with it because it's, you know, it generally is not natural to the founder? Uh, you'll know whether... Uh whether your company's succeeding or not succeeding. Um, and if you know in your heart that your company is not going so well, and there are lots of challenges in what you're doing, uh, that's when I think you should consider maybe you can bring in a professional CEO and find someone that you can work very, very closely with and partner with, and then you can do the things that you are really good at, right? The technology, the vision, dream big, changing the world. And then maybe the operator can focus on those aspects that you mentioned, which is how do you lead other people? How do you inspire them? How do you grow? How do you get operational efficiency? The whole scale stuff. Um, and you can do it that way. I've seen that work, but it really has to work well. Like that founding person and that CEO that comes in, they really have to have really mutual respect for each other and kind of try to build that bond. I think it's difficult. Uh, very often you see this founding members will leave and start another company. Uh, and then it's just left for the professional CEO. And that's what I mean. I think it's very, very hard then to succeed. Um, so that's th that's what I've generally have seen happen. Uh, the other thing I will say uh, is that um, most most professional CEOs, the view they have of the world is if there's an offer that comes in to buy this company, and if that offer is this much, and if I can grow the revenue in the next three, four years to that, if it's this much above it, then maybe I should sell the company. So they're kind of doing this kind of ROI analysis. So they're looking at what's the return on investment I get here. Four years putting my time here, 
I could drive the value to this. I could sell it for this much. Uh, is it worth it or not? Uh, so I think there's also this dynamic that non-founder-led companies uh, are easier to buy and they're more prone to acquisitions. Whereas I think a lot of founders are saying, no, this is my calling in life. I'm going to do this. We're going to succeed. I'm not selling it for any price. I love this job. Uh, this is my life. Uh, I'm not here to think about it as an ROI of four years, this much revenue, you know, sell it for this much. So that's, I think, another aspect that's really, really important that I've seen. Mm. So thank you for sharing. I'd love to talk about AI and data. Um, obviously not to. Um, there's so much conversation right now around AI. We're shooting, doing this interview April of 2023. How can startups and young businesses use AI tools to help their business right now in this climate? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Uh, I think, uh, first of all, we have to be humble and say we don't really know. Um, no one really knows what the world will look like in five years or 10 years. Uh, but it's very, very clear that this kind of technology is going to be revolutionary. So it's not an evolutionary technology that makes things just a little bit better. It really will revolutionize many, many things. Uh, I think the primary thing that it's going to absolutely revolutionize is really, you know, the user interface. And that might be underselling it. So really what I mean by that is any human-computer interaction. Anytime a human being interfaces technology, that's going to fundamentally change. All the ways in which we interface technology in the past has been based on clicking or pressing some buttons or typing things on a keyboard. But now these models, these machine learning models and AIs and these generative AI models are really, really actually good at understanding what human intention is and what we mean when we speak. Um, so that actually really changes everything that you're doing. Uh, every time you interface with a computer, that's going to change. Writing emails, it, doesn't, it won't make any sense to write emails the way you write them today. Uh, reading emails, uh, summarizing emails, meetings, education, everything that we do is going to be transformed by this. So I would really look at what are the new ways in which we can inter interact with computers and software. Uh, that's, that's, what I would, that's what I would think hard about. Uh, I think that's going to fundamentally change. So I think the next generation of startups that are going to come along are going to actually revolutionize that uh, in a way that wasn't done before. Um, if you're an existing startup, I think you should seriously, seriously uh, make sure that you're actually uh, getting ahead of it. Because in some sense, even if you're a company that has been around three, four years only, in some sense, you're a laggard unless you already were using all this technology that we're talking about here. So unless you're using large language model, generative AI, and these kind of technologies, um, then you're probably actually a laggard and you should watch out for being disrupted by new incumbents that are going to come along. I think this is a big shift. And these kind of technology shifts when they happen, like when the internet comes along, or when mobile comes along, or when cloud comes along, they disrupt lots and lots of industries and lots of different companies. And this is one of those, maybe the biggest one we've ever seen. Uh, so everyone should take it super seriously. Mm. And what advice would you give to people or founders or companies, early stage founders and companies around, I guess, using their data wisely to grow their business? Yeah. So look, I think number one thing you have to do when you start a company is focus on getting product market fit. And I actually think there is no uh, formula for that. So there's lots and lots of books. Lots of people will give you advice on product market fit. My view is that you should take everything everyone says with a grain of salt because it's an art. 
it's not really a science. And people are trying to make a science out of product market fit when it's not. Uh, so one way to break down the problem is in our early days, really focus on uh, iterating with customers and get data on uh, trying to get people to just get interested in just trying your product. So your number one goal should be just build something and iterate quickly with customers so that you can get them to just try it once. So that's number one step. S step number two, once you achieve that, you can get people's interest, they try out your product. Step number two is actually to get them to repeatedly use your product. And that's actually harder than people think because it's actually not that hard to get someone to actually try some technology out and say, oh, this is cool, I'll try it out, but then they'll not use it again tomorrow. How many times have we all done that? We've tried out something, some software, went to some website. This is pretty cool. I kind of like it. And then we never went back there again. Okay. So step number two is how do you get them really hooked so that they're repeatedly using it? And the usage of it is kind of going viral. That's what we had with Spark when the downloads were like increasing like crazy, right? Step, step number three, which is actually really, really hard and changes everything, is now starting to ask people to pay for it. And it turns out that just because you use something all the time, you don't necessarily want to pay lots for it, right? Some of the things we just, we think it should be free. Uh, and charging for it, not so clear, right? Back to our selfies uh, example, uh, those people loved what we had done with Spark. They didn't want to pay for it. Uh, they didn't think it was worth paying us any, a single dollar. So, uh, so step number three is, can you start charging for it? And I think that actually changes the whole dynamic because people then get way more serious about your product once you start asking them questions about paying. Oh, if I'm going to pay for that, then I'm not going to accept the product the way it is now. If you want me to pay for this, that's a completely different story. Then I'd then I, I'm not I'm not ready to do that. Oh, okay, why not? Well, at the very least, you the product would have to do X, Y, Z. Only then would I even consider paying for it. Oh, okay, why didn't you tell me that before? Well, before it was free, you know. Uh, so that's that's sort of the dynamic. Now, once you've cracked the code on uh, people paying you for it and how to price it, which I think is extremely critical and important for any business. And it's also another art that's really, really hard to get right, the pricing of the product. Only then can you move on to start scaling it and scaling the business and the sales and getting revenue up. And each step here, I think it's really, really important to be data-driven and really listen closely to the customers and iterating with them. Uh, extremely crucial. And way too many startups spend too much time building really cool technologies or products or services that they really know deep in their heart is amazing, but they haven't actually gone there and asked customers to use it or repeatedly use it or actually pay for it. And they wait way too long before they realize after two, three years that, you know, it was a cool product, but there wasn't really a market for it. It just means they didn't iterate fast enough with the customers to get them to use it once, use it repeatedly, and then charge for it. Mm. I'm curious, why not charge for it to begin with? Why do they have to just use it for free? I just think it's, you could, it's just, you know, and I'm not saying you should give away the software, but I think in the early versions, uh, it's just easier to iterate quickly and not get into a situation where um, you're already asking for them to pay it. And I think actually people often focus too much in the early days on, well, I got to get revenue. So I'm going to start asking right away for people to pay for this. And if you're in the software business, you, ha you can remove that friction and iterate without asking for payments. In some businesses, you can't, right? In some businesses, you have hard costs. So you can't actually iterate without asking someone to you know, pay you because it costs a lot to produce each version of the product. Uh, but I think it's just fast iteration and removing this, eliminating this friction around payment, uh, I think is 
beneficial. If you have a product that people like to use and they like to repeatedly use it, there is probably a way to monetize it one way or another. You're probably going to be safe. And most investors know that as well, that if something has crazy traction, uh, probably there is a way to monetize that. Hmm. That's great advice. Thank you. Um, speaking of advice, uh, you've continued to kind of teach in academics throughout your career. What's something you think you can't teach entrepreneurs in the classroom? I think the biggest uh, problem that humans have in general, and we all have it, and I have it too, uh, is that we're all programmed to view the, per the world from our own perspective, right? Uh, I'm sitting here thinking about this podcast from my own perspective. I'm thinking about my customers from my perspective. I'm building technology that I think is really cool because I think this is great technology. I think so. I mean, isn't the technology I'm building really cool? Isn't it awesome? Of course they would pay for it, right? And I think when I'm doing marketing, same thing. I look at the webpage and I say, does this webpage look good? Do I like it? No, I don't like this webpage. Change it. I want it to look this way. When I'm doing sales, I'm talking about my products, about how amazing they are. And I'm you know, expecting them to pay it. And you know, Hear me out. It's such an awesome product, right? Um, but actually, that's not how the world works. And that's a mistake we make. Uh, so if there's one thing we teach entrepreneurs is that it's not about you. I know we've all been programmed to survive and think about ourselves and we see the world from our own lens and perspective, but it's actually about the customer. So can you invert the problem? Um, it's not about what I think a website should look like. It's what my customers think it should look like. It's not about which sentence on the webpage I think is really cool or really represents my company well, because I think that's a well put sentence. That doesn't really matter. It's what the customers think. It doesn't really matter when I build a product, whether I think it's a really cool product and it's awesome and it's great technology and you should just understand how amazing I am. It's whether the customer thinks it's awesome. It's whether the customer agrees with it. It's not about what I think. And I think that's really, really hard uh, because that's not how humans are programmed. We're programmed to think about the world from our perspective. So the lesson after 10 years of reading lots of lots of business books, how do you price a product? How do you build a great product? How do you market a product? How do you sell a product? How do you even manage your employees? They're all these books, when you read them, you learn that there's just one lesson and it's a very hard lesson. And we all have to remind ourselves each day, which is work backwards from the audience, from your customers, from your employees. Put yourself in their shoes and work backwards and listen to them, hear them out. Uh, and you'll probably be much, much more successful. I've seen numerous uh, founders who have an awesome idea. They just know this is a great idea. And they work on it for three years. Just to later find out, they actually no one actually wanted it. There is no market for it, is the expression they say. Uh, well, if you had just approached it from a customer's perspective from day one, maybe you could have actually known this already the first week. So I was going to ask you as well, kind of, I guess, what should young entrepreneurs or early stage startup founders focus on learning? Would, it, would you say it would be that? Just focusing more on the customer and putting yourself in the customer's shoes? Yeah, I actually truly believe that. I don't think it's advanced tech. Advanced tech doesn't necessarily monetize. The most advanced things don't necessarily actually translate into lots of lots of money. Um, we focus too much on coming up with cool things, cool gadgets, or understanding this, or learning more, or educating ourselves on this and that. I think that really, if you have a knack for having empathy for the customer's needs and the problems that they have, and you can work backwards from that, uh, I think you can't go wrong. I think, especially in the business of software, which is, I'm, I'm in the software business, most software is not great. You know, if you've ever used a piece of software, it's annoying. 
It's hard to use. It makes mistakes. And we all know, right? We all know that the software is kind of annoying. It doesn't work. It's half the time it's not. Uh, so there's a huge opportunity for anyone to just come in there and fix that software, but they have to put themselves in the user's shoes and go through that experience. And I think especially as companies scale and they get bigger and bigger, the CEOs, the founding team members, they get more and more distance to the people that are actually using the product every day. Uh, they might focus on the people that buy the software, which might be different from the people that actually use the software. Uh, so I do think that that's the biggest lesson and the most important lesson. If you get that right, I think you'll actually be successful. And if you don't get that right, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how amazing team you, are, you have, uh, you're probably not going to succeed. Yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, Ali, we have to work towards wrapping up. Uh, could speak to you all day. You, you've got a wealth of experience, crazy stories. Uh, we're going to move to the hot seat round. So rapid fire question and answers. So first question I have is, are entrepreneurs born or built? I think the entrepreneurship is built. Maybe the grit and the hard work that maybe you're born with, maybe you learn it through life, but I think you can build it. I was certainly not one uh, when I started. What does making an impact look like for you? Making a dent in the world, changing things and how people are using something or doing something, actually substantially changing it, seeing that impact. What's the next tool that you believe will change the world? Well, I don't know what it looks like, but I'm pretty sure that the generative AI technologies that are being built now are going to completely revolutionize every job, every profession, every software, everywhere. And uh, we don't exactly know in which ways. We're starting to see it, but I think it's going to come from generative AI. So I would pay attention to that no matter which field, which job, which organization, which vertical. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Probably to not take advice from others. And the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, experts who said that, hey, everybody knows that that's not going to work. Um, because if you listen to what everybody believes and what everything is, everyone right now thinks is a consensus, then you're probably not going to succeed because everybody else knows that too. There is no value in that. Uh, so it's the, you know, the obvious statements. For me, it was, don't move into the cloud. All the data is on-premises. The cloud is going to take 10, 20 years. And we didn't listen to that advice. And as a result, uh, we succeeded as a company. Uh, last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would probably pick a scientist like Alan Turing, who started, you know, created the first computer and thought about how things would evolve far into the future. Uh, so that would be it. Or maybe John von Neumann, who created the first architecture and was even involved in the Manhattan Project and, you know, nuclear physics and all these kind of things. So I think those those are entrepreneurs. They changed the world. They didn't necessarily have companies behind back then, but eventually all of us are benefiting from creating companies around what they came up with. Well, Ali, thank you so much for your time. Uh, congratulations on all of your success with Databricks. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share all these incredible experiences, hard-earned lessons uh, with our community. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much. Likewise, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. 
So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.